following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. This morning, we're going on a journey. I was one of those uh, kids from one of those families that camped. I don't think I ever stayed in a hotel uh, as a kid, ever, uh, that, I, that I can remember. Uh, we, we would hook up the old Sears pop-up trailer uh, behind the uh, Plymouth Volari station wagon, and uh, Dad was into conserving gas there in the mid-70s, and we would head out, and we would just go on a journey. And all Mom and Dad would tell us is, we're heading west. We were in uh, Missouri in the 70s, and uh, we would just head west. And we would go to places unknown. We would go to the great, uh, the great sites and the canyons and the mountains uh, and the national parks. And, and we would just walk. We'd camp and you would just walk wherever you would go. We'd, we'd enjoy all of those things. We were that family uh, that had the uh, a map of the U.S. on the back of their trailer on the camper. And the ones, the states that we'd visited got marked in and filled in. And as you're driving down the interstate, you would probably look at them and go, what a poor, pathetic family. They had to camp in all of those states. And we would look at you and go, you poor, pathetic people who stay in hotels. Why would you want to do that uh, when you have communal showers and communal bathrooms and no hot water? I mean, who? But it was always an adventure of going and experiencing something. I was a Boy Scout, and I remember uh, going on trips on the weekends and hiking and one of the best was going into the Southern Rockies and hiking 110 miles uh, around the Southern Rockies uh, and, and being there in nature and wondering what the next morning uh, was going to be. And especially one morning where we camped and had been right on the edge of one of the high peaks. And we got up early in the morning, we went up there, and we were able to be there at, just after the sun had risen and see the glorious all the way looking up into Colorado and looking south into Mexico. And it was glorious. It was a journey that we're on. We're all on a, on a journey. For those who are younger, it's awe-inspiring. The journey may be as simple as, again, when I was little, we would pull, my dad was a pastor, we'd pull out of uh, the driveway of the church. And if we were going to turn right, ah, we knew that we were going somewhere for lunch. If we turned left, we knew we were going home. And so we always liked turning right because that meant we were going somewhere for lunch and you didn't know where it was. And you get excited as a little kid going, oh, this is going to be great. Is it going to be Bonanza or Ponderosa or Burger King or Burger Chef and Jeff or whatever the places were? And you're just excited about it. And as you got to be a teenager, you became so much more mature and you weren't as excited about those things. But there were other adventures that you were on, and some of you are in those times of great excitement in your walk with Christ. Others of you have moved into sort of more of a jaded uh, adolescence, maybe, and you're not as excited. You're questioning things deeply and profoundly. Others of you have moved to a place of great reflection of the journey that you've been on, of watching God's faithful hand over all of your years of marriage, of child-rearing, of grandchildren, uh, of your enterprises in life. But we're all on a journey. The scriptures take us on a journey as well. 
And we're going to begin looking this morning, and we're going to spend several months here of looking at the journey, looking at redemption's journey, uh, of through Exodus, uh, of seeing this faithful, covenant-keeping God taking this little group of people, of 70 uh, of the children of Jacob, uh, and taking them with all of their families and moving them into Egypt and seeing them grow and prosper and then come under the tyranny of Pharaoh and to be oppressed and to be beaten down. And then God moves in as a great redeemer and he sends Moses as his mouthpiece and his hand and he destroys the gods of Egypt and he leads the people of Israel out uh, and there they head towards a promised land uh, that they haven't seen. A land flowing with, with milk and honey. And they experience highs and lows. And they experience thrills. Uh, and they experience death. And they experience loss. And they experience it all in the, in the journey along the way. Exodus is a book that you need to understand if you're going to understand anything in the New Testament. Redemption and redemption story didn't begin with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It didn't begin with Matthew 1. Actually, if you read Matthew, you'll see very similar patterns within Matthew's gospel uh, and Exodus. Uh, you'll see trends and movements and, and identifying uh, times and causes and different features. And, and what you see and what you learn is this. The only way to understand Jesus Christ, the only way to understand the Son of God, the only way to understand the Lamb of God, which came to give His life as a ransom for many that we celebrate this morning here at this table, is to understand the Exodus background. It's to understand the fact that the only way that God passes over any of our sins is because there's the blood of one who is wiped over us. That we are now smeared in a way in that very graphic picture, uh, smeared with the blood of Christ. And so the hand of God's justice goes over us. And it landed with all of its force upon Christ, our Redeemer, our Lamb. But you don't understand that outside of an Exodus experience. We don't understand uh, that we had to be delivered from tyranny we had to be delivered from principalities and powers who were there to destroy us unless we understand that God came and he removed his people, protected them, and removed them and destroyed the ultimate enemy there for them in Pharaoh. We don't experience Pharaohs. We don't even experience governments. But we experience one that we sang about today who is felled by one little word at the name of Jesus Christ. Our enemies are defeated. That our ultimate enemy of sin and death, which oppresses us and tries to destroy us, he's defeated and we're led out. And we're now on this journey towards the promised land that we get foretastes of it. We get to eat a little manna along the way and quail and we drink water uh, from the rock and we touch and taste honey from the rock and we see glimpses of it. But we never get to enter in fully until Christ returns and says to us, come back into Eden, come into the promised land. And so we're all on this journey. And so my hope for you uh, is that you can recapture some of that childlike fascination with the journey. That you're not going, okay, we're going through verses 1 and 7. Okay, got that this week. And the next week is 8 through 20-something. And then the week after that, you chop it up, but you get the big picture. And each week you come and you get more and more excited about where we're going, about what we're learning, 
So I encourage you to read and to study ahead. I'd also encourage you to study back. Because Exodus can't really be understood fully unless you've read Genesis. They're, they're tied together. And we'll see that in just a second. And so read and see God's covenant and his faithfulness uh, with his, to his people in the middle of all of this. So I'm going to ask now for the Holy Spirit to bless our time of reading God's word. And then we'll talk together. Father, we praise you. And we give you glory in Christ's name. And we ask now humbly that these are just words on a page to us. This is just a historic narrative unless you, by your spirit, come and you work through your word into our hearts that we would understand and know and it would be applied to us. So, Lord, we invite you to come for your people humbly listen. To Christ be the glory. Amen. As you pick up Exodus and you begin to read it, you'll notice something. The first word in your Genesis or Exodus 1.1 is the word and, right? It's right there on this. No, that's interesting. It's not in your Bibles either, is it? The very first word in the Hebrew is the word and, though. And for some reason, the English translations don't pick it up because here's how it would read. Beginning in Genesis 50, verse 22. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Micah, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you out, up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. And then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you will, shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him. And he was put in a coffin in Egypt. And these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly, and they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. This is the word of the Lord. And he had his blessing, the reading and hearing of it. And it's a story. It's one story. It's not the Genesis story and then the Exodus story. It is one story. That Joseph was going to die. And all of his brothers and all of their relations were coming in to Egypt and there they were settling into the land of Goshen and there they began to multiply and to grow fulfilling the creation ordinance the creation mandate to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth the promise made to Abraham of I'm going to be your God and you are going to be my people that your descendants will number as the stars in the heaven and the sands upon the seas and so Israel was there they were immigrants they were immigrants that should challenge us a little bit in today's thought processes, but they were the immigrant peasants who were coming in from another land into the land of plenty, and God brought them into the land, and he placed them there, and he prospered them, and he cared for his people, and they grew, and then they were there. And then it picks up in verse 8, and it said, there arose a Pharaoh who didn't know Joseph, Ramses, and he hated the people of Israel because they were a threat. 
because they'd grown too numerous. They were a threat to his political stability. Uh, They were worried about them, and so they decided uh, to oppress them greatly and to burden them down. And we saw uh, that they still continued to thrive and to grow, even in the oppression, uh, even in the systematic government programs that were taking them and crushing them down. They still grew and multiplied, and God was blessing them. Though he decided, now I'll just have to do a genocide of them. I'm going to kill every male. Because I figure this, I I can stop their population rates if I can kill every young male. And so he began to kill the children of the Israelites and to murder them and to throw them uh, in uh, to the Nile so they would drown and be consumed by the God of the Nile. And so this is Israel's story. This is Israel's journey uh, of where they are. And we look and we ask the question, what does that have to do with us? Well, it's our story. Because this journey, this journey of being there in Egypt was a journey that began and it was a challenge of kingdoms, really. It it was really a a battle, an epic cosmic battle of seeds, of lineages. And you'd have to flip back to the beginning of Genesis to get that picture. Because in the beginning of Genesis, you see Adam and Eve were created. They were historic figures that they lived there uh, in uh, Eden. And they uh, were there. And in chapter 3 of Genesis, that sin entered the world, that Satan came and he deceived Eve. And Adam uh, wasn't off the hook. But it said that Adam was standing right there next to Eve. And he could have defended her. He could have actually spoken truth. But instead, he remained silent. And he said nothing. And both Adam and Eve fell as an aside. Men Find your voices and lead your families. Men have been silent for too long. Uh, and they've allowed, uh, they've, they've allowed a perversion. And so we as men need to stand up again. Uh, and to have a voice again in that way. And so Adam stood silently by. And sin entered the world. And God had promised if you eat of this fruit. Then surely you will die. Death will enter the world. And it did. And so there was now a distance between Adam and Eve, between man and woman. There was a relational and social breakdown. There was an emotional breakdown for they felt shame for the very first time. And now there was also a breakdown of their relationship with God, a spiritual breakdown, a disintegration. Everything had been perfectly integrated and now it was beginning to unravel, to disintegrate. And so God came and in Genesis 3.15, he made a promise. It's the first gospel message. For it says, and I will place enmity between you. He's speaking to the serpent, to Satan. He says, I will place enmity between you and your seed and her seed. And I and you and the woman, and I will place uh, a war basically between your seed and her seed. And he, third person, singular, he, third person? No, second person, singular, excuse me, um, Anyway, I'm getting third. I was right the first time. I should really stop overanalyzing my own words. And that he will crush you on the head, but you will bruise him on the heel. Who's the he? All of a sudden, it takes on a masculine term. All of a sudden, it takes on a person. And what we see in the beginning there is, ah, this is the first time Christ is mentioned there in that sense that he, the seed of the woman, he, Christ, was going to come and ultimately he was going to crush the head of the seed of the, of the serpent. That he was going to destroy all the enemies. And now there was a battle, an epic battle that was set up between Christ and the followers of Christ and those who were opposed to him and to his father. And there was going to be this battle and all of a sudden Cain and Abel takes on a different meaning. You begin to understand it better. 
that it wasn't just two brothers who were at odds. It was two kingdoms who were at odds. Uh, Then you realize that, oh my goodness, now when these things were happening, that these are kingdoms colliding. These are colossal cosmic kingdoms that are colliding and that are there. And Israel, now you understand it, that when they're in Egypt, it's not just a political power of Egypt trying to crush uh, a, a nomadic power or political power of the Hebrews. It was two kingdoms. The kingdom of the serpent that is of Egypt and the kingdom of the woman that is of God's people. Of Christ, and they were in a battle together. And God, in His great faithfulness, promised to protect His people and to redeem them and to bring them out and to constantly uh, give mortal blows to the enemy until ultimately at the cross we see this journey taking on a picture of Christ on the cross where He fully crushes the head of the evil one. Now, the evil one bruises Him on the heel, but that's not mortal. But Christ crushed His head. And he won the victory. Do you see it all binds together? And ultimately one day what heaven is going to be? Heaven is going to be this incredible feast. Heaven is going to be this victory feast of victory feasts. It is going to be on a mountain, it says in Isaiah 25, where, the, where God himself will descend and be on the mountain and he will throw a banquet. And he says that that banquet will be the best of the aged wines and the best of the meats and there will be a celebration and there will be no more tears for it is the celebration of the Lamb. And that's the picture of what heaven is, of the victory of God and of his people. That's where we're heading. That's actually pretty good stuff. So, you know, Presbyterians, you can go, mm, to that one. Non-Presbyterians, you can say amen or wow or that's great or good stuff like that. That's where we're heading. It's all of this journey. Well, Exodus is understood in the grand narrative. And so I want you to see that grander narrative within it. Because this isn't just a history lesson. If it was, I'd still be excited. I love history. I love reading it and studying it. That was my major in college. uh, And I still read about history. But this isn't just a history of nations. This isn't just a biblical history. This is your history. And it is your current story, by the way. Because what we're going to learn as we go through this together is we're going to learn about ourselves in relation to our great, redeeming, covenant, faithful God. We're going to learn how he works. We're going to learn how he doesn't work. We're going to learn about our enemies. We're going to learn uh, daily applications of these things. And so I'm going to highlight five things uh, this morning of themes that we're going to talk about uh, as we move along this redemption's journey. And we're not going to see them every week, all five in their totality, but we're going to see these over the course of time. So hopefully when we're finished with this and you reflect, you'll be able to go, "Okay, I see this. Boy, this has been expanded to me. I understand uh, what Bill was saying. Of course, I'm indebted to wonderful commentators and other writers and pastors for many of these thoughts. Someone once asked, uh, what's preaching really like? And I said, it's creative plagiarism. Um, (laughs) And so you can go to some books and you can find several of these things. But the first thing uh, that we're going to learn about and the first theme and the hope is that you would know God better. Is that you would know God better. One of the, one of the great things of being in relationship with someone for a long time is you begin to know them really well. Better than they probably like to think you know them. Uh, but in marriage or in friendship or in parenting, you, you just know them. And so my hope is that as we come to this Exodus story, that you get to know God better. They become more fascinated with him. 
that you learn more of the nuances of who he is, that you get excited about these things. The psalmist in Psalm 66 used the words of the Exodus this way. He said, come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds towards the children of man. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There did we rejoice in him who rules by his might forever, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Selah, come and see what God has done. Do you hear the excitement in the psalmist? He's going, I want to show you something. Come and see what I've done. It's the child to his parents going, look at this thing that I just created. Look at this picture. Come and see this because I want you to take it and be fascinated with it and be fascinated with me. It's coming and looking and not going, ah, I've got to see a Hollywood movie to determine what the Red Sea looks like or how it parts or what these things. But in your mind's eye, you allow the Holy Spirit to kind of guide and direct you. I, I enjoy baseball. I used to be much more passionate about baseball. But one of the things that has over the time caused me to lose some of my passion for baseball is it's all on TV. And you can't find it on the radio anymore very often. Or I used to enjoy listening to baseball on the radio. You'd have a good color commentator who'd tell you about uh, the day and the wind coming in uh, over the right field wall at Wrigley. And you'd be at old Turner Field uh, and you'd have you'd have the batter. You'd have Dale Murphy coming up and he was in the box and he put his bat between his legs and he got dirt and he rubbed it in his hands and he was up there and you would hear the, the pitcher go into a windup and the pitch and he hit it. and You're going, oh, he's going and you're picturing it. And you're watching Dale Murphy in your mind's eye running down first base and trying to get there. And you got Chief Nakahoma out there uh, in the outfield hanging on the drums. And those of you who aren't from the South, I'm sorry. But it was awesome. It was good. The Braves were terrible. But it was so fun to listen to. And you pictured it in your mind's eye. And we've lost that ability today. And so I want you to come back. And I want you to enter into a land with a people who are oppressed. And I want you to stand at a precipice of a, of a sea. And you have no way of knowing how you're going to cross this sea. And, and you've got a marauding army who is coming uh, not to take you prisoner, but to absolutely destroy you. And to leave your body strewn across the sea coast. And then God, through this man Moses, with a staff, puts it down. And the seas part. And you don't walk through sludging through pluff mud. But you walk through on dry ground. And you go. And then you see God close the sea over your enemy. And you're safe. Can you see that? Can you picture a fiery pillar in front of you at night? That stands guard over your camp? That says as long as this fiery pillar burns, no one can touch you. And during the day, wondering, should we go to the right or to the left? Where should we go? What are we going to do? We're out in the middle of the desert. We don't know how to get to the promised land. Where are we going to go? Oh, there's this pillar of smoke and clouds. That is the very presence of our God. And he goes that way. Therefore, we'll go that way. Or you wake up in the morning hungry. And all of a sudden, there's something on the ground. That's what manna means. 
what the heck is this? Is basically the translation of it. What is this? And you pick it up and you eat it and you're nourished. And you're out in the desert and you don't have water and water comes out of a rock. You starting to get the picture in your mind? I want you to learn more about God. I want you to be more amazed by him. I, I want your categories to be expanded. I want you to get rid of. I don't want you to think outside of the box. I want you to get rid of the box. I want you to let God write his own categories for you. I want your language and your emotions to betray you because you just get to a point where you understand what Paul was writing about in Romans when he says we have a spirit that testifies with our groanings too deep for words. And you go, ah, and God goes, I know exactly what you mean. I know exactly what that thought means, that I'm too great for even your emotions. And all you can do is just go, wah. Of God's glory. That's part of the theme that we're going to look at. That we want you to see God. In all of his greatness. To know God better. The next thing I want us to learn together. In this introduction part. And to see going forward. Is I want us to not only know God better. But I want us to wrestle with the mystery of his plan. I want you to wrestle with the mystery of his plan. Now, this is an important one. I don't have time to fully flesh it out. We're going to look at it more next week. But consider this. Have you ever figured out why the people of God were suffering under the hand of Pharaoh? What did they do wrong? They obeyed God at the end of Genesis. That Joseph, by God's providence, had been placed there in Egypt and had grown in stature to where he was basically the prime minister. He was the next in power to Pharaoh himself. And that he invited his, son, his brothers to come in. And he brought Jacob and he brought all of his brothers in and established them in the land. And they were being faithful to God. Other places God had said, don't go to Egypt. But in this part of Genesis, God said, go to Egypt. And so the people were faithful. And in the middle of their faithful following of this sovereign covenant keeping God they were suffering you know why neither do I and so you have to wrestle with the mystery of God's plan you have to wrestle with the fact that while earth was threatening God's people heaven was silent while they were while their sons those of you who have children, your son. Now, there were no sonograms of the day. You didn't know if you were having a boy or a girl. You just knew that you were having a child. And at that moment, you were praying for a daughter. Because you knew if it was a son, they would come out and someone would slit his throat immediately. Or throw him into a river to be eaten by the crocodiles or to drown. And you would hear his wails. And heaven was silent. And you were beaten and you were oppressed, and you were being taken down, and you looked to this covenant faithful God going, why is this happening? And there was nothing. We're going to wrestle with the mystery of God's plan. We're going to challenge even our own logic, because here's how our logic works. If I can't figure out any good reason for this to happen, if I can't in my mind figure out why this is happening, therefore, there must be no good reason that this is happening. That's the logic of most people. 
And what Exodus is going to challenge us with is this. It's going to show you the flawed nature of that logic. Just because you can't understand it does not mean that there's, something, there's not something greater happening. Just because I can't see it doesn't mean there's something more to the story. And so it's going to expose the faulty nature of our logic. And it's going to expose our arrogance in that logic. We are so arrogant to think that just because I don't understand it, then there's no greater plan behind it. That God has to fit, fit into my model. That God has to explain himself to me. That there has to be an A plus B equals C. That's fine for trig and algebra. But it doesn't have to work within the sovereignty of God. And this is where you need to scratch on the side of your outline there. We're only on point number two, by the way, of five. And I recognize we got to move. Uh, thank goodness this is an introduction. Uh, but write down this verse. I've said it to you before, and I will say it to you again. Deuteronomy 29, 29. For the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed to us are for us and for our children, our seed, our children, that we may obey him and worship him. That means this. God makes himself known, but not fully. There is a mystery. Maybe you've lost a loved one. And you've looked to heaven and gone, why did I lose this loved one? And heaven's silent. Maybe you feel the enemies are winning. And you look to heaven and you go, speak! And it's silent. There's a mystery that you need to wrestle with. And it's the mystery of God's plan. That somehow in the middle of all of this, God was working out a redemption that would redeem his people, bring glory to his name, and establish the beauty of the cross of Jesus Christ. In the middle of all of that, folks, if you don't think that's applicable for today, you have not listened to what I'm talking about. Every parent, every child, every person can look and go, I don't understand what's going on. But I can trust this God. Because he's shown enough to me to be trustworthy and worthy of my praise. So we're going to wrestle with the mystery of God's plan. We're going to know God better. We want to understand, third thing, we want to understand God's redemption. We want to understand his picture of redemption better. That he is a God with a name. Uh, that he's not just some God, but he's a God with a name. He's a God who is knowable in that way. And that he is a God who saves us from something for something. That he is a God who saves us from something for something uh, Tim Keller, the pastor at Redeemer Presbyterian Church, said this. Salvation is rescue from the misery and slavery of serving anything in your life as more important than God. The first principle of the whole book of Exodus is your journey of liberation. Your exodus out of slavery isn't done until it finds its destination in absolute and utter worship and service to God and God alone. You're only free if God is your master. If God is not your master, the ultimate center of your life, you're enslaved to something else, something that's not the real God, something that's not worthy of you putting the highest allegiance of your soul into. You see, God has saved us from sin and death and the slavery of dominion of those things so that we can come and follow him. He doesn't just set you free so that you can just do whatever you want to do. We come and we find our freedom as we are serving him. We understand more deeply that we're saved by the blood of the Lamb. We're saved, but we are still sojourners in a royal priesthood on a journey to a promised land. 
and that we're ultimately saved by Christ, the true son. So we want to understand God's redemption more. Fourth thing, we want to understand God's mission, that it's larger than we think, that his mission is beyond the scope of our little mission, and that we have talked about it previously, and we'll talk about it more, of what does the mission of God look like within the life of the believer. And then the final thing that I hope that we learn together over our journey through Exodus is that we learn lessons for living out our faith. We learn some lessons for living out our faith. We learn to deal with issues such as racism and murder. We learn to deal with issues such as care for the unborn, life and death. We learn to deal and to see that God loves to use the weak instead of the strong. Look at the heroes of the first chapter. They were midwives and women. Isn't that awesome? That God preserved Christ through faithful midwives in Egypt. Women who had no standing and had no place, but God honored them. He uses the weak in this story, and he continues to use the weak and to use those who are marginalized in our world. He loves to use ordinary people. We're going to learn about the importance of singing praise to God. We need to sing well, folks, because God's worthy of our praise. I haven't done it, nor will I probably ever do it, but I still remember one Sunday, Sandy Wilson at Second Presbyterian Church stepping out from behind this massive pulpit that he had, and he would stand behind it and win the singing, and the congregation of 1,500 or 2,000 in the sanctuary was singing one of the great hymns of the faith, and it was really, really bad, and Sandy stepped out and he said, stop. If we can't honor the Lord better than this, then let's go home today. Exodus shows us that we need to sing and give praise to God. The story of Exodus shows us the nature of true community. How do we live together well? Of relying on God's daily presence in our lives. Obeying his word. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Honor the Sabbath day. Honor thy father and thy mother. Do not lie. Do not steal. And we'll learn about true worship versus idolatry. So there's a lot that we're going to learn as we journey through Exodus. But the thing that we're going to focus on in our few minutes that we have together now is a story here that we learn about a lamb that was slain. A lamb who was perfect and righteous without blemish or spot. A lamb without broken bone. A lamb who was set apart. And that Christ determined it was at the Passover feast that he would explain his redemptive story. He said, this isn't just bread, this is my body, which is given for you. This isn't just normal bread. It's not just unleavened bread, but the Passover, the Exodus only finds its true meaning in me. And this isn't just wine, and it's not just the blood of any lamb, but it is my blood shed for you for the ultimate forgiveness of your sins. And so we come today to this table. Let me invite you to prepare your hearts. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for all that you've given to us in Christ. For the preservation of your word. For the story of redemption. Now bless us as we come to this table. In Christ's name, amen.